Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at a few verses right here, beginning in verse 8. Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Skipping down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Flip over several pages to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 23. I'll start in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac upon his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with works, and by works was made faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the capital F, friend of God. That shows up again in Isaiah 41.8, and in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, it talks about how Abraham is thy friend. Then, if you go to Genesis chapter 11, we'll be spending some time in Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran began, begat Lot. Now, the story of Abraham continues on for the next 14 chapters. You get a whole synopsis on Abraham. So, as you can see, Paul has given the greatest portion of the hall of faith to perhaps the goat of faith. Abraham is the goat. The greatest of all time when it comes to faith, right? Three times it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham operated by faith in three different ways. Then you have three different accounts in the uh, scriptures written by three different writers and in three different ways but saying the same thing, that Abraham is the friend of God, right? And then you have 14 chapters out of the first book of the Bible, like your introduction to everything (laughs) is Genesis, that is, of 50, 14 chapters of 50 chapters is nearly 30% of that book is allotted just to Abraham for one man. And it was allotted to him because of how much he meant to God and how much God meant to him. And how he became the profoundly and prolifically, prolifically known as the man of faith. But that's not all Abraham is known for. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. Abraham, the name Abraham shows up 70 times in the New Testament. Isaac only shows up 18 times. Jacob only shows up 25 times. Joseph, 10 times. David, 54 times. Jonas, Jonah, the prophet, like none other, who is unto us, only shows up seven times. Noah, the great Noah who built the ark and survived the flood, only three times. Now, Moses shows up a lot. But that's expected. Moses went through the plagues and delivered the plagues unto Pharaoh. And then he had the whole Red Sea experience and the whole wilderness wandering thing. And then he set up the tabernacle. He received the law. And one day, Moses returning. So I would expect his name is going to be brought up a lot. Abraham shows up 160 times in the Old Testament. That is 99 times between Genesis 17.5, where his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, to his death in 25.19. 99 times it shows up there. Now, after his death, he is remembered and mentioned only 61 times in the Old Testament. He shows up more times in the New Testament after his death than he does in the Old Testament. So, with all that being said, maybe, just maybe, there is something about Abraham. Maybe he's even going so far as to be called your role model in a way. Or at the very least, he is somebody or someone that is worth looking into their life and into their past to see what it is that God saw about this man. What was it about this man? What What was it about this man that caused God to choose him of all the other men on the earth at that time? There was a lot of them. 
okay? Understand the whole flood thing happened, but you've got about uh, 10 generations, nearly 400 years from the time Noah got off that ark until Abraham comes on the scene. It was a lot of people. But there was something about Abraham that was very unique and very special. What was it about this man that caused him to choose him out of everybody? What was it about this man that touched the very heart of God and provoked God to call him his own friend with a capital F? I like that. I mean, the guy had his own place in paradise named after him. Come on, man. Abraham's bosom? (laughs) That's pretty special. The guy deserves a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, or at least a face on Mount Rushmore. But wait, he got something way better. He got his name and his life eternally preserved in an eternal book. The the Hall of Fame, the the Walk of Fame, you know what's going to happen to it? Rubble. Mount Rushmore, it's going to crumble. But Abraham will forever, ever be remembered. So if you will bear with me for the next 45 minutes, my hope is to show you in the scriptures four attributes of Abraham that I think God God's attention and is worth our attention and looking into and hopefully one day attaining to. Let us pray. Father, I thank you first and foremost for this privilege, for the ability and uh, I'm not apt, but you enable, and I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for your goodness, your mercy. I thank you for the preserved and precious words that we can continue to, to hold new and fresh every day, how it speaks to the hearts and souls and lives of people. Even in 2023, you are the living God, and it is an honor to know you and to serve you. I pray you would speak to these people today in the way that only you can, and we will give you the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. First and foremost, the obvious, he was a faithful man. Abraham was a faithful man. I'm going to keep saying that word man over and over again too. Because I like that. I like that he was a man. And that we can still have men today. I'm not too worried about pronouns around here. I'm not even sure what that word means. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 9. Turn there real quick if you would. Abraham was a faithful man. An attribute absolutely worth attaining to. So then they, Galatians 3.9, which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. That's an awesome title. I love the titles he's been given. Hebrews 11, again, Hebrews 8, 9, and 17 talks about the things he did by faith. You could call him Father Faithful if you wanted to. He was a man full of faith, but not only was he a man full of faith, he was also a man that was faithful and loyal, okay? And I would find that this is perhaps one of the greatest attributes or qualities that any man can possess. If there is one thing my father-in-law is and continues to be and wants to instill into the hearts and into the minds and souls of you people is faithfulness, 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 faithfulness. He used to have a dog by the name of Buddy. Awesome dog. Such a good dog. He was, he was almost, I would call it faithful to a fault, but there's no such thing. But he was just so loyal, just so faithful. To a, almost, to a, to a, almost to the point of like, are you retarded? Like, what is, are you? No, I'm just, I'm just really faithful. I'm just really loyal. I just really care about you. I just really, like he just wanted to please all the time. What an awesome dog. Now you have... All these things that have happened prior to Genesis chapter 8, right? God is, is, is there, and then the flood comes in, and then Noah gets in the boat. The flood happens in Genesis 8. Genesis 9, the waters abate, and they all disembark the boat. And then Genesis 10 is just a whole synopsis of the generations of Noah from Shem to Japheth and Ham. As I said, that's 10 generations, about 400 years. And then Genesis 11 comes in, and you have the Tower of Babel, right? So God did something, but God wasn't really a part of things like he was prior to the flood to a degree, right? So there's this 400-year gap of like, where's God? Like, what's he talking to people about? What's he he saying? What do people know of God? What has come off the ark as far as, like, we're passing this on, the stories and the the history, and this is who God is? I honestly don't know because we don't have 
of much of an account of it. But then, all of a sudden, turn with me in Genesis chapter 12, all of a sudden, out of nowhere. So, although God was not maybe actively being a part of humanity, there is no doubt God was not watching and listening and overseeing, obviously. And some men, some man specifically got God's attention. Because here you have Genesis chapter 12. Nothing of God up to this point. Then all of a sudden, boom. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. What? Like just out of nowhere? And I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now, I don't know. Maybe I would have just gone along with it. I would have had some questions. I would, have, I would have debated a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you just do what you're told because there's this obvious figure that is speaking to you, this obvious voice, and, and it is a very authoritative voice. And, and you, you have the stories of, well, this is the same God that brought the flood, and this is the same God that destroyed the Tower of Babel and split, all the, split, all, split the language and created all these other languages. So maybe, but I just, that, that, that to me... Is a, is a powerful thing. That took a type of faith that I really don't know anything about. Because I have scriptures. I have something that when somebody said, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, they, they gave this to me. And then that inspired and instilled some faith in me. Maybe it works the same way. Maybe that audible voice of God worked in him the same way that these words work in us. But I say this, leaving his family his home, and his comfort. He had it nice where he was. He was doing okay. Things were progressing along just the way you would want them to. And then up and move, take all your stuff and go, and he does it. He was a man of faith. He was also a faithful man. You look in Genesis chapter 12, and you see these different accounts in verse 8. It talks about how uh, and he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and uh, Hai on the east. And there he built it an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And it happens again in 13, verse 4. Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And then lastly, in verse 18, he does it again. And then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So not only was Abram, Abraham a man of faith, he was a faithful man. He knew who he needed to keep going to. He was faithful unto God. He had faith in God, and he was faithful unto God. Genesis fifteen six says, And this is a verse that, that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. His faith made him righteous. His belief and faith in God equals his righteousness. But again, as you know, that faith, which we all are guilty of this, I know. We're all born again Christians. I believe most of us here are. And, and we do uh, try to keep our faith in God. But you and I both know you get plagued with an ailment or a sickness or financial difficulties. Where's the first thing you turn to? More times than not, you try to solve it in your own might, your own ability, your own education. You try to trust the system, right? Not Abraham. He knew right where to go every time. What faith? That's the kind of faith that's going to grant you a title, the friend of God. Solely in God and God's ability to do what he said he would. And it's so simple when you think of it in that context. All I got to do is just believe that God is going to do what he said he would. That's all I have to do is believe that God is going to do what he said he would. 
And this is the perk that we have that he didn't have at that point. He didn't have a whole lot of accounts. He didn't have scriptures that said, let God be true, but every man a liar. He didn't have all the evidence of all these other stories and all this other history to say that God, oh yeah, he did exactly what he was. He, by faith, believed God said something and God was going to do it. I like that. A faith-filled heart is the best kind of heart that you can have. Why? Because it is, a, it is a heart filled with faith that leads to a heart of obedience. That, that obedience is not going to come until that heart of faith has been planted and grown. And 1 Samuel 15, 22 says what about, about sacrifice and obedience? What does it say he prefers? What does he say is better? Turn to it. 1 Samuel 15 so you can see it for yourself. 1 Samuel 15. This is being said in a time when sacrifice was like the jam, man. That's what you did. You sacrificed stuff to get things back in rest- restoration and fellowship and, and that, this, that, and the other thing. But <laughs> the thing about that sacrifice is that sacrifice can't happen until what comes first. Let's check it out. And Samuel said... This is the whole story with Saul not going in and taking care of the business he was supposed to take care of. And Samuel said, half the Lord as great delight. And his excuse was, well, I took the goats and the things because we're going to sacrifice them later. He's like, whoa, whoa, what did God say? Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. He wants obedience. But you can't have it without faith. And as we read in Hebrews 11 verse 8, he says what? And, and, and Abram believed God and obeyed. You see that? The faith, then the obedience. Don't get that caught in front of the horse or vice versa. No, yeah, caught in front of the horse. Vice versa would actually be the right way. It was, uh, this is, this is, this obedience, it's, it's, it's what God, it's what he wants, but it's also what he needs. He needs. Just like I teach my kids, I need you to, I, not that I want you to obey me, I do. I need you to obey me because there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to try to run across the pocket. I'm going to say, Jaden! And you're going to go. But if you don't obey me, you're going to keep on running. Schmack. Like I need my kids to obey me. I don't, I'm not this power hungry guy. I really am not trying to do that. I don't need to have all these things in subjection under me. It's in part why the title pastor scares the living daylights out of me. I don't want that kind of, I don't, I really don't. But I do need what God has given me to obey me. And I think they will obey me because they have faith and they have seen dad is going to do what he said he's going to do. It is, it was this incredible and immense amount of faith that Abraham had that allowed him to become the friend of God. And honestly, who does not want that put on them? Faith is the foundation by which the Christian builds upon, right? And faith is the key which opens the door of heaven for us, but it also opens the door of our hearts for him. That is how he starts to get in and get a hold of our hearts is through that faith. And that's where the heart then desires to obey him first and foremost. Faith is the motivator which moves the Christian to do things for God's glory and not their own. Because we're all human and we all like getting a pat on the back and so and so did this. There's partly why I'm in carpentry. I love the little daily victories. I love being able to step back and say, you know what? That looked like crud and now it looks great right? Or whatever. That was just a flat piece of earth or a big mound. We tore it down. We built upon it, right? Like, I like that. But there is a small part of me that that does enjoy, and I'm being honest with you, that does enjoy Trinity Home Construction built this. I kind of, that's why I stick a sign in the front yard. We did this. (laughs) Because I need more work, too. (laughs) But there is something to be said of that. But as a Christian, it has to be about his. It has to be. Because that's what, that's what other people will see. That's what will touch and impact the hearts and lives of others.
And I also wonder if this amount of faith and faithfulness, he, Abraham showed up in the Old Testament hall of faith. I wonder if, if we couldn't have the same kind of faith and faithfulness that Abraham had that would one day, if there ever was one, allow one of us to end up in the New Testament hall of faith. The church age Christian hall of faith. The bride of Christ hall of faith, if you want to call it. I'm not saying there is one. Perhaps there isn't. But I'm going to think there is because you know what? It would be kind of a neat thing to know that I am the friend of God. (coughs) Secondly, not only was he a faithful man, he was a family man. He was a family man. Look with me in Genesis chapter 17. These are attributes that you can attain to in this age and era. Even though this was thousands upon thousands of years ago, these attributes stand to be so profound and so beneficial in your life and in the lives of others and utmost beneficial to God himself for having invested time and energies and efforts in me and sacrificing himself for me. A family man. Genesis chapter 17. Verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. That name Abraham means high father. 18.19, Genesis 18.19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of. This is speaking of not just the fact that he is going to be, yes, he was a father of a nation and of a people, But he was a family man in the fact that he was a father unto his family. Yeah, he brought home, he brought about an entire family, the Jewish family, the Hebrew family. But he was first the family, the father to the family that God has given him. How how is it God's going to give him this title or expectation to be the father of an entire nation if he's a cruddy father to his own house? It's just not going to happen. That's not how God operates. I've not seen that in the scriptures. I see Abraham as being a family man. Now, Father Abraham appears nine times in the Old Testament, uh, or appears nine times in the Bible, two in the Old, and seven in the New Testament, actually. Our Father Abraham appears two times in the New Testament. So he is, he is, as I stated, a father to a nation, but he is more than that. He is a great father to his family in providing, protecting, and preserving. For his wife, his children, his grandchildren, and his entire household, it says. Abraham, to me, was the epitome of a family man. Abraham, to me, defines what it is to be a family man. Perfect? (laughs) Obviously not. But yes, he was a family man. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2. Let's look at some of the things that he provided as a family man. 13.2, and Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Garnish some of those on his own abilities and merits, but God set some things up that allowed Abraham to wax richly in his life. But the point I say this is, he's going to provide. Abraham's family never went without. They were taken care of. Taken care of. That's a good thing. And if you're working your tail off to take care of your family, then that's what you're doing. And you are taking care of your family. You don't have to have vast wealth to be able to provide for them. I work paycheck to paycheck still. I wish I didn't. I'm trying to get out of that rut. But that's the way it is. But I'd like to believe that there's food in the fridge and a roof over my family's head and hot water when we want it. You can flip on the AC if you're too hot. Flip on the fireplace if you're too cold. You get it? Like... My vehicles are running. We can get from point A to point B. My kids are in. I'm saying all that to say, just because Abraham, just because you're not rich doesn't mean you're not providing. Because if that's the case, I'm in in trouble. (laughs) Big trouble. But he was, and great for that. And I'm also not saying that you can't be a good born-again Christian and have wealth. I wish you would. (laughs) I really do. I think God, if you can handle it, let me put it that way. Not everybody can handle great wealth. But if God has given you the ability to be a good steward of what he has given you, then go for it. 
My dear friend Seth Stevens, my wife's best friend growing up, he always had a grand vision of being a millionaire. He's on his way to doing it. High five you, bro. Get her done. I'm happy for you. I think that's fantastic. But he's such a good steward of it. It's not just willy-nilly buying everything he can, or, and he's not about, I'm trying to show it off or brag about it, right? He gives back more than God gives. If you can do that, you can't. But anyways, you get my point. Genesis chapter 13, verse 11. Where else? Genesis 13, 11, and it says this, speaking of Lot. And the context is, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. There's, uh, he's taken Lot with him. Lot's got a lot of cattle. Abraham's got a lot of cattle. It's getting a little bit, <laughs> not so great. So Abraham, in providing for his family, and in a way actually protecting his family, says this. You know what, Lot? You go ahead and pick. You see this over here? You see all this? I'm going to give you first dibs. What you want? Which one? You take it. You can have it. That's a good uncle. Uncle Abraham, right? And Lot lifted up his eyes, and behold, the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land, uh, even as, yeah, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from another. That was profound wisdom on Abraham's behalf, and, uh, and graciousness. He didn't have to. He took Lot with him. He could have gotten first dibs. He's the uncle. My uncles would have never done that to me. Are you kidding me? I didn't, I didn't even have a good relationship with my uncles until I was later on in my adult years. They were jerks. Genesis 24, 14. You know the story. We want to turn there. This is Isaac, right? He goes out and he sends a man. He sends the best, the best servant in his house. I need you to go find my son a wife that is not of this land. It must come from our tribe, from our family. Even, he was such a good father that he was even thinking about the future, he was thinking about his son's future. He was thinking about the future of his grandkids. He was, he was trying to prepare. He knew the responsibility put upon him. So he went and provided Isaac a wife. Now it's different. We don't operate that way anymore, you know. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying we don't, you know. My, my daughter is one day going to pick her husband. And my son is one day going to pick his wife. Hopefully the one that God has picked for them. I would prefer that because that's even better than the ones I could pick because I would pick one that just got money. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But I would hope his family at least had something to help out with the cost, you know. Uh, But this is a good man. This is a good father. He has his priorities in order. And in Genesis 23, again, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, it's kind of long. It's verses 1 through 20. And what it is talking about, this is, he is such a provider, even in the death of his wife, he wanted to make sure she had a place to be buried. Thing, we don't think about these things, right? Like, that is not something I am even trying to contemplate right now, huh? Because what will happen is we're going out together, so my kids are going to have to find something for us. Uh, but if I was a good dad, I would have had it already prepped out, and everything would have already been taken care of prior to all that, so you guys wouldn't have to worry about that. But my point is, he was a family man. He was a, a, a father. He was a husband. And he provided. And he also protected. Look with me, if you would, in Genesis chapter 12. Now, this one... I know y'all may not agree with me on this one, but eh, I don't know that you can't say it either, that it's not true, but just look with me for a second. Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, 13. Yes. So here we are. Abraham is now leaving and he has gone down into Egypt. And in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 12, say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. Right. So, you know, the story, they're going into Egypt. They're going before Pharaoh. Abraham knows what the Egyptians are like. He knows what they're about. Now, I don't condone I don't agree with the way Abraham operated. But if I put myself in his shoes, this is where I finally came to the idea that he was protecting. Right? He was protecting Israel. 
the future. Because he was right. If they had found out that they were married, they would have taken his head right off. Because even in Sarai's older age, she was fair. That means she was beautiful to look upon, right? She was a good-looking woman, right? And they were not going to be bashful about it. If they wanted her, they were going to take her by force, if that's what it took. So in his wisdom, in his, uh, what, in his in, he had, I don't want to, again, I say, I, I'm going to say he had the sense, but I'm not saying I condone or agree with the fact of putting his wife in that predicament, but in the fact that they were in that predicament, he realized, if I die, it's game over, y'all. How can I provide or protect or do or preserve? It, because we need to preserve the truth. We need to preserve our kids. Their righteousness, their lives, all of that. He protected the future of Israel. And I get it. He had, his, he had a little skin in the game. He was, own, he was trying to protect his own hind end as well. I, I can't fault him for that, okay? We all are trying to survive, right? Genesis 13, verse 6. Here's another way he protected. Genesis 13, 6. Uh, did I already do that? No. Uh, oh, yeah. Five. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and they land was... Oh, yeah, we did already cover that previously in the provision. And this is how he also protected. He protected the relation he had with his nephew, right? Because if things had continued the way they were headed, they were just going to be... Con- it was going to be, it wasn't going to be good. Contention, uh, discord, bitterness, all those things, right? Because once your livelihood or your money starts getting affected, which is what cattle and, and, and the fields and all that was for them, then you just start getting a little bit ornery and a little bit bitter and a little bit resentful. And Abraham had the sense to say, you know what's more important to me? More important to me is my family than me having the better land or than my pride, right? So I appreciate that about Abraham. He protected his family. Uh, And he even went, Genesis 14, look at this one. This one's crazy to me. Here's, what would you call Abraham? I don't know if you could call him a farmer or a cattle herder or a shepherd. I don't don't see where he had like a a skilled trade, so to say. Was he an investor? Maybe Abraham wasn't an investor. I I don't know what he was, but I know what he wasn't. He wasn't a warrior. Not that I could ever see. I've never seen anything prior to this where it talks about what a great fighter and a great warrior Abraham was, you know? But man, some of that stuff is just inside and just waiting to come out. Uh, So you have Genesis 14, 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318. And it's interesting how it says brother. Uh, in his own house, 318, pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, which is actually his nephew, but, you know, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. But because they are of the same family, they are brethren, right? You get it. It's not a contradiction. He protected his family. And he went and got, he fought against these kings and these warriors and these soldiers with probably smaller number than they had. I don't know what their numbers were, but there was a plethora of them. And he went and took back Lot. And not only took back Lot, but then he went ahead and took back all the other people and all the goods and everything. And then he went and returned them back unto the king of Sodom. And then the king said, you know what? Or Melchizedek actually comes out and meets him and says, hey, you go ahead and keep the stuff. He's like, you know what? I'm even going to protect God's reputation. No, you take this stuff. I just want my family because everything I have, I got from God. I don't need y'all saying I got it from you. I'm going to give God the glory. So he even protected God's reputation. Not that he had to, but he did. I appreciate that about Abraham. There are some attributes worth attaining to. Now with that said, If we as husbands or as fathers do not provide for and protect our families, beginning especially with our wives, then either they will have to do so themselves, and they should never have to do that. Or in time, they will find somebody who will. And in a way, you can't blame them. 
Because I ask myself, is there much worse things on earth than a weak man? And there, there, there isn't. And, and it's the evidence of where we are today and what we're dealing with today. Why this stuff is so rampant today is because men became weak and very limp-wristed. And it's going to take something extremely drastic for men to get back up where they belong and take a stand. If God had intended for the woman or the wife to be the provider and protector, to be the leader, then he would have made her first, don't you think? But he didn't, did he? He made the man, the husband, the father first for a reason. See, even before the fall, man was made. He was made, yes, to have a relationship with God, but he was made for the purpose to provide and to protect and to lead. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. That's what he was made for. Yes, he was made to glorify God. Yes, he was made to have relations with God. Yes, I, all of that is, is known and given, but in the context of what we're talking about, and in reality too, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Here he goes. Forms him, fashions him out of the dust of the earth, out of clay. (sighs) Breathes into him the breath of life. Takes him. Boom. Do your job. Do your job. Do your job. And he did it. What does that word dress mean? It means to embellish, to work it. So even before the fall of man, there was work to be done. It was enjoyable work. No doubt. But there was work. And what does it mean to keep something? It means to guard it, to protect it, to preserve it. From what? It was perfect. What? You know what? He was supposed to do his job. He had a job. See, the hard choices and the hard decisions, the hard physical work, it's on the man to make that and to do that. Don't get me wrong. I have stayed home. And I have tried to do the dishes and teach the kids. My wife works way harder than I do. Truth be told. Right, Andre? He works with me. He knows. My wife will work circles around me. In the taking of the home, in the directing of of this co-op, and all the karate stuff, all the driving she does too, and here and there and back and all that. But at the end of the day, whose the responsibility fall upon? Whose back, whose shoulders does it fall upon to make the hard decisions, to do the hard work, to sweat? Not her. Me. You husbands. You fathers. That's what a good leader does. He leads by example and not by authority. Right? You know the illustration you got the captain on, the, on the, the chariot, so to say, and he's, and he's in the back of the chariot, call it horses or call it men pulling the chariot, and he's in the back, let's go, move it. Yeah, he's leading him into battle, right? But then you have the image on the other side, which shows the captain in the front of the chariot, pulling them all along, doing the hardest part of the work, first one into battle, first one to make the hard choice, First one sweating. I ask you this. If we are not our spouses, and I normally, I'm, 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 I'm speaking more to the men in here, it seems like, but this can, it, it goes across the board, but if we are not our spouse's biggest cheerleader, then whom is? If we do not build up, encourage, and support our spouses, then whom will? If we only provide and protect the physical needs of our spouses, and that is at the very minimum what we should be doing, then we have missed a huge part of our privilege and purpose in being joined to another person to make a complete whole. And if you think for one second that your kids are too little or too naive to see and to hear the dysfunction in your relationship then you are only deceiving yourself. They know. And the damage that is done 
in the spouse relationship is only going to magnify and expound in the parent relationship. Because whatever we do in excess, our kids are going to do in way over moderation every time across the board. Hence why we are where we are again today in 2023. And never forget this. Never forget whom God gave you first. I got her first. I love these two with my whole heart and being and soul. But every day, every time, she comes first. She has to. Because at one point, they're going to leave. <laughs> and then it's just going to be the two of us. So we've got to live with each other for the rest of our years, you know? And I know our kids, our kids they consume, and, and they, and they, but that's all good. When God made Renee and I, he dug us up out of the earth, out of one piece of clay. And he pulled us apart. And he set us on our separate ways and on our separate journeys until we converged again one day. And we became that complete whole that he intended us to be from the beginning. One lump, one flesh, one whole. Forget not when you mistreat, talk down to, overwork or overstress. Ask your spouse to do something that you yourself are not willing to do. You abuse physically, mentally, and or spiritually your spouse. You are doing it unto yourself. And that is anti-scriptural. That's self-mastication. You can't be doing that stuff. You shouldn't be doing it to them. For you two are truly one flesh, joined together so much deeper than you will ever, ever realize. Why do you think it is that spouses begin to look like one another as they age? That's the weirdest thing to me. When you got married, you did not look alike. A couple of decades passed, and you're like, are you sisters and brothers? You really start to like, no, no, we're not even from the same state, you know? Like, but you start to become one flesh. Why do you think it is that you can finish their thoughts, or you guys are on the same wavelength about things? You truly are one flesh. Crazy story. My sister's in-laws... Richard and Virginia Taylor have been married for 53 years. Now, without divulging too much information on their personal behalf, they have not always shared the same room for those 53 years. I actually asked my sister the other day, when would you say that they stopped having that kind of relation? And she said, well, honestly, right about the time Alex was born, which would have been some nearly almost 30 years ago, But you want to know something extremely weird? They both just wound up in ICU, practically together with the same condition. Heart failure. Now, they didn't take the vax. That's what I first thought. Richard is an active guy. He walks the dog multiple times a day. Virginia, not so much. I would understand why she was had a heart attack, and was in ICU dying. Richard, I was flabbergasted. All of them were flabbergasted. They did not see this come. She went into, the, into ICU on, say, a Friday. By Sunday, he was in ICU a couple of rooms down. Everybody was like, what is going on? And it dawned on me, they are so much one flesh that they're literally dying together. Connected in a way the medical world will never understand. That's crazy. Abraham was a faithful man. He was a family man and he was a friendly man. James chapter 2, 23, we read that. Isaiah 41 verse 8 says the same thing. It talks about how he was the friend of God. And it says how Abraham, thy friend, the friend of God. Genesis chapter 18. Look there real quickly if you would. Genesis chapter 18. Now this is, this is the... Uh, excuse me. This is right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has some visitors show up at his door. And the Lord appeared unto him in plains of Mamre... Um, 
And they lift up his eyes and look. Yeah. In the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts, after that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, so do it as thou hast said. And he goes on and he prepares this meal. He, he puts this whole smorgasbord together, invites him into his home. He was a friendly man. Now granted, the Lord showed up. You best be friendly. <laughs> but we need to be friendly to one another and to a lost world out there. Amen. It's okay to be friendly to lost and dying people. Amen. It's okay to have friends that are lost and dying as well. Amen. Now, be careful with your fellowship and how much time you do spend with them because if you think you're going to bring them up out of the gutter, that doesn't usually happen. It just kind of pulls you down with them. But if you are strong in your faith, you are strong in your family, there's a good chance you can be that strong friend that helps them along. So to just discard every lost person that comes into your life as we can't have friendships, you might want to recheck that thing and ask yourself, well, why am I a light then? How, how can I be a source of light if I keep my light hidden from people? Because you know this? People don't really care what you know till they know that you care. Clichéical, but true. Amen. See, friendliness, friendliness requires selflessness. Amen. That's a tough one. Because we're all selfish, to a degree. It requires putting others before yourself. It requires giving without getting or expecting. That's not easier by our nature. We usually give with some kind of a kickback, you know, with like a, a little incentive. Why am I going to put an investment if I'm not going to get a return? Well, friendship isn't about, isn't like that. You give because it's the right thing to do. Amen. Friendship requires a relationship. Ugh. It requires an investment, a sacrifice, because that's what every relationship requires, is an investment and a sacrifice. And the greatest of those would be time. Something we are very limited on. Something that seems to just fly right by before you know it. Time. And you know what your friends probably want from you more than anything is your time. Not your money. Maybe some of yours. You need to check your friends if that's the case. But... They really want your time because they want you to listen. If you have friends and all you do is talk, 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 but don't ever listen, you might want to check which side of the friendship is, is really working here. Is it, is it a one-way road? Because it's got to go two ways. We've got to listen. I had a friend who I thought was a friend. And I listened to him for 16 years. I didn't do much talking. I did a lot of listening because he was struggling for 16 years. And it's amazing how you can find out things about people that you didn't really know. But you know what? I don't ever regret. I don't ever regret being his friend. Now, our ties are broken. I will not, anytime soon, talk to that man. But even when he got arrested and was incarcerated and he had nobody else, I listened. I gave him some money so he could actually call me. I gave him money on his account so he could actually video chat me. Because I wanted to know the truth. I really did. I wanted to know, could this possibly be? What they're saying? I'm just, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Time. Listening. Learning about your friends. Learning about their likes and dislikes. This, that, and the other thing. Learning about what's going on in their life. Learning. And laboring with them or for them. Now friends are something you choose. Family is chosen for you. I don't get to choose my family. I'm born into it. Right? I have to love my family. At the end of the day, I got some crazy stuff going on in my family. And my... Not even... Yeah, anyway. Uh, it's just a little cray-cray. But I love them. I don't always like them. But I love them. Now, my friends, I get to love and like. That's a double bonus, right? 
You all have family that you love, but you really don't like them or like what they've become or like what they're doing. Now, David and Jonathan have got to be the best picture of this in any scriptures and anywhere in life that I have ever seen. What they came through together. What they meant to one another. What they did in sacrifice for each other. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. When your friendship grows from friend to family, that is specially and very rare. And usually only gotten or born out of adversity, out of hardships, out of difficulties. That's what he's saying. A friend loveth at all times. No matter what's going on, no matter what is happening, no matter how uh, good, bad, ugly, wealthy, rich, this, that, and the other thing, you're a friend. You love through it. But when things get really tough and wicked hot and everybody else runs away, you know what happened? That friend sticks around. And he grows from a friend to a brother. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. 1 Samuel 18.1 says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. See, that's, men are really like, they're, they're struggling with wrapping their head around this concept. How could, let me, let me take it another step forward. Judges 20 verse 11 says this, So all the men of Israel were gathered together against the city, knit together as one man. That's what that word knit means. It means they, when you knit something, you take two pieces of fabric and you make it one by knitting it together. And their hearts, their souls knitted so close together, you'd almost thought they were married or something. But they weren't. They were just friends that grew to brothers. Inseparable bond. It was rare and can't be expected with every relationship or friendship you have. But I would hope that you have at least one Jonathan or one David in your life. I hope you do. Mine is Andrew Stephen Ferguson. I'm a terrible friend. But this kid I met in PBI at a convenience store. He had just showed up and was about to be a student at PBI. And I didn't know him. I'd never met him. I was coming off of work and I was dressed in my grubs. I was very filthy. I'd been doing some landscaping and carpentry. And there he was at um, um, uh, Jug and Uggs or whatever that place is on the corner down there at the end of the road. And I could tell he was a Bible student. He just had that look to him, you know. And I, I, and I started joshing him. And I was like, hey. I said, please don't tell me you're going to that school up the road. He goes, yeah, PBI. I says, that heretic Ruckman. I said, dude, his, his name is all over this town. Are you serious? I said, you should probably go up to PCC. They're getting it done up there. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to go to PBI. Thanks. And we went our separate ways. And then I went to class. And in comes Andrew. And he goes, you dog. <laughs> and he didn't say it, but I could see it in his eyes because I made eye contact with him. What does he do? He comes right up to me. Sits down right beside me. Looks at me. I was like, hey. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing. He's chewing gum. I said, man. I said, my breath, my breath is banging. I said, I could get a piece of that gum. Would you mind? He goes, yeah. Put out your hand. <laughs> he spat his gum into my hand. I do not know this kid from nobody. So, me being who I am said, well, I was like, bro, that has got a ton of flavor in it still. He goes, I like you. I said, I like you. We are each other's Jonathan and David from that day. And lastly, let me finish. He was a fearful man. He was a faithful man. He was a family man. He was a friendly man. And he was a fearful man. Now listen, there is good fear. That kind of 
fear of disappointing somebody, right? The fear of not doing your best or the fear of losing a loved one too soon. That all, those are all just natural fears, good fears to have. There is a bad fear. Worrying about what others think or say. Stop it. Don't worry about it. Forget about it, right? That fear of losing something that you can't lose, like your salvation, right? And there is healthy fear, that, that fight or flight kind of a fear, right? That I just don't want to starve today kind of a fear, so we feed ourselves because we don't want to die. That's a healthy fear. There is unhealthy fear. There are phobias that cause panic. If you have a phobia, I'm sorry. Um, that's just the way it is. But when that phobia becomes one of a panic that's going to cause harm unto you or unto others, that is unhealthy. Okay? There is a right fear. Uh, that fear of getting caught doing something you shouldn't do, kids. Or adults, right? That is a right kind of fear to have because hopefully that will either stop you from doing it or at least says you still have a conscience that isn't seared over, right? And then there is wrong fear, that paranoia and that worry. That is not good. There is also the fear that we have for proper authoritative power in our lives and the fear that we have for our parents, Now, this is how I've come to explain this the best way that I can. Combine the two of those latter fears and mingle in and add in some humility and some honorableness, and you will get to what some people called, as Spurgeon and Bob Jones Sr. have called, a reverential fear. That's a good title for it, but I I like to think of it more of that kind of fear where I'm not, it doesn't cause me to cower or to be afraid of approaching my God. Like, I don't want my kids to be afraid of approaching me or coming to me. Like, I don't want them to have that. That's not healthy. That's not good. That's not right. I need to be able to come to the throne of God boldly, but I need to do it with the right kind of fear. It's an honorable, it's a humble, it's a reverential fear. It is a fear that keeps us that it is a fear that of not keeping his commandments, rather, right? That's that kind of a fear. I, I want to keep his commandments. I want to honor him. And a fear of that will keep you doing that. It is a fear and, a, and it is a loathness to offend him. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to offend his name. I don't want to offend who he is or what he represents or what Christianity represents. It is a, it is a fear and is a desire to never disappoint him. I'm afraid of not of of disappointing him, right? Like I don't want that. My kids, I know. That's that's where my kids got with me some years back. You know, you 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 discipline, and then at some point, your kids get this in their heart that just says, "I don't want to disappoint my parents," and in that they obey, and in that they do right. It is also. A fear that is inward worship towards him. Revelation 14, 7 says, Fear God and give glory to him. When you fear him, you are worshiping him on the most inward being of yourself. You are worshiping him in your soul. And he wants that. Genesis 17, 9 talks about the circumcision that Abraham had to perform on himself in his latter years, as well as all the men and his kids. I'm going to tell you what. That takes some fear of God to put that thing into action. Because uh, otherwise, I'm going to pass on. That's going to be a hard, big nope sandwich for me. Thank you very much. But if you fear God right... You do exactly what he says, no matter how crazy it sounds. Because that stuff sounds crazy. Just saying. And then it talks about Isaac in Genesis 22. And offering up his only begotten son, Isaac. That took a fear of God. Understand, there was faith. Oh, for sure. But there was a fear of God in there that would take his only son. To have to go that entire journey in that walk. I don't always get it. I don't always understand it all. But I know in both times that Abraham exercised that fear, what happened? God showed up. God showed up. When you fear God, you will see God. See, the culmination of his faith led to his fear. 
Fear of God does not lead to faith in God. Faith in God rather leads to fear of God. I had faith in my parents before I ever feared them. Now, they broke that faith and replaced it with some pretty ugly fear. But that's not my God. My God's never going to do that. And yes, I get it. We all have a a fear of hell that provoked us probably to get saved, right? How many people, you don't have to, but if you were to to say, oh yeah, I got saved because I was afraid of going to hell. That would be the majority of 100% of us, right? No one would say, I got saved because I had a fear of God. Because you can't. The faith is going to come first. Then the fear of God. It will be the result of it. And if you have not grown to fear God beyond your faith in God, then you have not only more growth yet to do, but you are not fulfilling your duty and your purpose of being born. And better yet, of being born again. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the wisest man concluded the whole matter. He ended the book of Ecclesiastes. He ended his life with this. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. The more God reveals himself to us through his word and our exercised faith, the more we understand whom and what he is and the more we begin to fear him. Proverbs chapter 2, last verse, and I'm winding this thing down. Proverbs chapter 2. Verse 1, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart unto understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then, then, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You want to understand the fear of God and what that means? Get in his word and exercise some faith. And I promise you, you will get there. Something we used to hear back in the day, but certainly haven't heard it in probably decades, is he or she is a God-fearing man. That's a God-fearing woman. It just doesn't happen anymore. One preacher put it as this, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. See, godliness is not measured by how many verses you've memorized. Although, that is a great thing to do. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? You need to memorize scripture. But don't you dare judge or base your godliness upon how much scripture you have up here. Because if it's all up here and it ain't in here, (laughs) it's kind of a waste. Godliness is not determined by how many souls you've helped lead or point to Christ. And for sure, that is the greatest blessing you will, one of the greatest blessings you will ever experience on this earth is being a part of that eternal transformation, that eternal transaction, that moment when one cell, hell soul is headed directly for hell for eternity. And because you gave them some words of truth, because God pricked their hearts and motivated them, they are now bound for heaven. Man, there's nothing like it. Once you get a taste for it, you'll never be the same. Godliness is not manifested in your church attendance or your tithe, but both are necessary and important things to do. Godliness, rather, is measured, determined, manifested in your fear of the Lord. Faith to fear. Faith is how you please Him. Fear is how you praise Him. And if along that journey you are blessed with a family and are some friends then take that vertical love and let's send it horizontal. Let's reach the family and the friends. But first, you've got to get that vertical. Four attainable attributes of Abraham, even in this age and era. Faithful, family, friendly, and fearful. Father, we love you. 
I thank you again for another day, another time to gather together with like-minded uh, saints and brethren and sister and Lord, and just how good it is to still be able to have this type of fellowship and have this type of camaraderie and to still have this bond, even in such crazy, crazy times, Lord. I do not know how much longer you are going to tarry or how much darker it is going to get, but may we stay fortified. May we stay as a family and to be able to be that light, to be that help, to this world that is so needed. Lord, you have to do the work. You have to do the enabling. We just want to be willing vessels used by you. We thank you for these men, uh, both in the scriptures and in times past, that are great examples and great lessons unto us that we can uh, garnish and, and wean from, Lord, and, and maybe learn by, uh, by example rather than by experience. But we thank you for the experiences that you do get us through and that you do a lot to us, Father. We love you. We thank you for those who have come out this morning. Lord, I pray you would impress upon them the need and the desire and the ability to still be faithful and friendly and a family man and a God-fearing man in a day when they are trying to destroy all of these things that we are speaking about. You deserve it, Lord. May we be able to give it unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.